pray. God and Father, we praise and thank you that you've given us your word, that you've chosen uh, to speak to us uh, through your word that was delivered so many centuries ago, and yet your spirit continues uh, to use in the hearts of your believers even today. So may we be strengthened, may we be encouraged, may we be challenged and sanctified by your holy and precious word this morning. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a delight and a pleasure and a privilege to be with you this morning to open God's Word. This morning we've had the first chapter of Ezra read to us, and Ezra is an important part of the, of the story of God's people in the Old Testament. Um, in, in the course of the history of God's people, there, there were many times when we saw the same pattern emerge again and again, and this was the Lord bringing his people back into the land that he had given them. Uh, from the very first chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve, mankind were driven out of the Garden of Eden. And we know the, the entire story of Scripture is the Lord bringing his people back into his presence again. And we see that finally fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Or Israel, in the book of Exodus, brought out of the land of Egypt, brought out of slavery to the land that the Lord had promised them. Or even uh, David, in the life of David, David uh, many times had to flee Jerusalem, but the Lord was always faithful to bring him back to his throne. Uh, even our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, driven into the desert to be tempted, but was successful and again returned to his people to lead them to salvation through his sacrifice on our behalf. Well, perhaps the, the, the biggest story in, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures of the Lord's people being brought back into their land was when they were exiled because of their sin. You may remember that in 586, the people of Babylon came to Jerusalem and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And the Lord made it clear through his prophets, such as Isaiah and Zephaniah and other prophets, that this destruction was because they had turned against their Lord and God. They had served other gods. They had bowed down to false idols. They had disobeyed the Lord's law. And so King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and exiled the people. Not only did he destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple, he took the people out of the kingdom of Judah and brought them back to Babylon. But the book of Ezra tells us that despite this rebellion of God's people, despite their sin, despite uh, the refining judgment the Lord put them through, he was not finished with his people. And so Ezra begins to narrate the return and the restoration of God's people back into their land. And so by doing, Ezra foreshadows all of our return to the presence of God and to the eternal promised land, not, not, the, not the small strip of land known as Israel, but our eventual return to the new heavens and the new earth and to the very presence of God. And so we'll see this in three ways this morning. In the first two verses of Ezra 1, we'll see God's anointed person. And then in verses 3 to 5, we'll see God's anointed purpose. And then in verses 6 to 11, we'll see God's anointed place. Well, we begin in verses 1 and 2 with God's anointed person. At any time you start a new chapter in a new book of the Bible, you have to kind of get your bearings. You have to know who are all these characters that are first introduced, what's going on, why are they named. We saw uh, the name of Cyrus, which we may not know. Why is Cyrus mentioned? 
Uh, why are they in Persia? I thought you said Babylon exiled God's people. Why is Jeremiah mentioned in the very first verse? And why is the first point of this sermon God's anointed person anyway? What does that have to do with anything? Well, Cyrus, uh, how the chapter begins in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus was uh, a, a great king of Persia. He actually conquered the Babylonian Empire and ushered in his own dynasty of the Persian Empire. And so he was a, uh, a mighty king. And we see in this chapter that he sets out to restore the people of God to the promised land. And the, the text says this was according to the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now in Jeremiah chapter 25, the Lord had promised or warned his people that because of their sin, they would be exiled. But Jeremiah 25 also says that this exile would only be for a certain amount of time. That after 70 years, when that time was fulfilled, that the Lord would bring his people back to the land from which they were being driven. So Ezra tells us that the Lord is being faithful to his promise. He, he had told them, only 70 years, and when the 70 years are finished, I will begin to bring you back to the land that I have promised you. And we may wonder, okay, so the 70 years are clearly up. So how will the Lord, how will the Lord do this? Uh, they are, the people are in uh, uh, many miles away from their homeland. They're in an empire that is far more powerful than they. They have no uh, rights. They have no status. They have no standing. How will the Lord fulfill his promise to af- after 70 years to bring his people back into the land that he has given them? Well, clearly this text has something to do with this man Cyrus. And in fact, this was prophesied by the Lord many years ago. Two centuries before this text, the Lord spoke to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 45, the Lord says to his anointed Cyrus, I will go before you. I will give you the treasures of darkness, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Before Cyrus was ever born, the Lord through the prophet Isaiah spoke to him, knowing that one day the Lord would stir up the king of Persia to bring about his purposes. And you may wonder, why does Isaiah call Cyrus his anointed one? Why does Isaiah call Cyrus, this pagan king who he, who he admits does not know the Lord, does not know the name of the Lord, why does he call Cyrus his Messiah? Why does he call Cyrus his anointed one? I mean, we understand why, why David in the Old Testament had this title, or Solomon, or Joash, or other kings in the Old Testament. But why Cyrus? This is a man who laid waste to empire after empire, who conquered hundreds of people groups. How could this... This man who does not know the Lord and is, uh, in many ways, a, a violent and conquering man. How could he be part of the Lord's plan? So much so, the Lord calls him his anointed one, his one chosen for this purpose. And you know, brothers and sisters, we have similar questions in our own lives, don't we? We see the things that the Lord brings into our daily lives. We see, we see the struggles that we face. We see, we see the evils that this world brings against us. And we may wonder, are these, are these things really a part of God's plan? Are these really the Lord's anointed purposes for our lives when friends at school belittle us, 
when uh, attorneys mishandle our parents' estate, when our spouse mistreats us. Is this really part of the Lord's good plan for my life? Can I really be sure that he is in control? And sometimes we, we just act like the Lord uses these evils. You know, the evils are out there, and the Lord's kind of like a janitor who's walking down the hallway and sees a mess and thinks, oh boy, I better clean this up before the school board comes to visit today. We sometimes treat God that way. The, the Lord comes across evil in my life and says, oh boy, how am I going to make this turn out for well? And then, then he gets to work. But in fact, Scripture tells us that God is not merely one who reacts to what others are doing. The text tells us here that the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus. The Lord uh, anointed this man. He put him here for this purpose. Scripture tells us that the Lord foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. We may wonder, how could the Lord use a man like Cyrus? But as Scripture tells us that the Lord's motives are good, the Lord always sends things into our lives for our ultimate good and for his glory. And if the Lord's purposes always come to pass, then we know that he is trustworthy. We know that we can trust that whatever obstacles in our lives that we have to face, that yes, may be caused from a worldly perspective by sinful men and women. Cyrus was not off the hook for the things that he had done in his life. But we can also know that the Lord is good. We see a wonderful example of this in the life of, of Joseph. I mentioned earlier the Lord's people in, in Egypt. And at the end of uh, Joseph's life, in, in chapter 50 of Genesis, he looks at his brothers and says, You know, brothers, you meant evil against me. You sent me down here because you wanted to convince uh, our father that I was dead. <laughs> because you hated me. Joseph says, You meant evil against me. But the Lord intended it. The Lord meant it for good. To bring about the salvation of many souls. So even if it wasn't out of the kindness of Cyrus's heart that he was sending God's people back to Israel, it was out of God's goodness. And we can apply this to our own lives. We have a, we have a, 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 a cheating business partner. We have an elderly uh, relative who's sick. We have a teacher who's unfair. These people are responsible for their sins. You know, we can trust that the Lord has purposed these things for our good. Just as the Lord purposed the, 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 the greatest and most powerful man on the face of the earth, the, the emperor of Persia, to bring his people into the land that he had promised this. But perhaps we know this most of all to be true, because this was the experience of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. When Christ set aside his glory as the eternal son of God and came to earth to establish his church, to die for his people and to rise again for eternal life. He knew that he would be murdered. He knew that evil men would rise up against him. He knew that one of his disciples would betray him. He knew that the Romans and the, and the Jewish leaders would conspire to have him crucified. And yet, this was not a surprise to him. This was not an accident. This was not something that he decided to turn into a good for you and me. 
But this was his intention all along, for the salvation of you, and for the salvation of me, and the salvation of all who look to him in faith. On the day of Pentecost, Peter looked at those gathered there, and speaking of Jesus, he said this, He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, yet crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, this is true with Cyrus, if this is true with Caiaphas, if this is true with Caesar, if this is true with these great men of history, if God is powerful enough to work through, through those events, then surely whatever you and I face in our lives are not outside his grasp, are not outside his good intention of perfecting us for holiness, for an eternity, and his ultimate promised land. Well, if that's God's anointed person, if that's God's anointed Cyrus to bring about uh, the return of his people to his promised land. That, of course, hints at our second point this morning, God's anointed purpose. We saw this already in verse 2. It was to go up to Jerusalem. We'll, we'll look at their task upon arrival in a minute, but I want to really focus on the Jews' role in all of this. Look at verse 5. The text tells us, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. We've already considered how the Lord stirred up Cyrus. Now here we see the Lord stirring up his people. And this is important. Put yourself in their shoes. The prophet Jeremiah had encouraged them to put down roots in Babylon. He had said, you know, plant vineyards and build homes and seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. And so they were, they were settled there in Babylon, and it would have been easy for them to be comfortable. Just, just read the, the book of Revelation. It describes again and again the allure of the world, which it describes as Babylon. And the world can be comfortable, and they would have been, they would have been settled there after 70 years, and perhaps uh, the generation that remembered uh, the glories of the temple. Many of them had died. Uh, many of these would be a, a next generation who, who didn't know what it was like to live in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they would have been there in Babylon, you know, literally the center of the world, the, the, the most powerful uh, capital on the entire planet. But they have wanted to go back. But they have wanted to go back to a land that had been destroyed, to a city that was desolate. And yet, uh, we can't really blame them because how comfortable do we get in this world? How comfortable do we get with our amenities, with our lives made easy? We, we say we long for the things of God, but we're happy right here many times. Thank you very much. I think of the Israelites as they left Egypt and they encountered opposition. What do they say? Oh, if we could just go back to Egypt, the cucumbers and the leeks and all, all the food we had. And they, they, they struggled to obey the Lord because they, they wanted that comfort. But the Lord the text tells us, stirred up God's people. The Lord's Spirit worked upon them to remind them of their promises that he had given them. How, how else would the Lord have stirred them up, them up but by, by re- reminding them of the Lord's promises that he had told them that he would restore uh, them to their land. Ezekiel 20, a promise that they would re- be returned to the land of promise. Isaiah 43 The Lord says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And Isaiah goes on to predict the return 
So surely the Lord, through his spirit, uh, reminded the, the people of these great promises that he had made to them and brought them out of Babylon in faithful obedience to his call upon them. And I, I pray that the Lord would stir us up similarly. Many times we are consumed by the pursuit of, of the things of this world, whether it be our, our career, whether it be getting our, our children just the right college and we, we start planning from the day they turn you know four that we're going to get them the perfect college one day and sometimes it goes right and sometimes it goes wrong or uh, you know we, we we are glad to worship the Lord and as long as we get our, our leisure time as well we, we have the things of the world that we cling to scripture calls them idols because they compete for our hearts they seek to crowd out our devotion to the Lord but we, may we likewise remember the promises of the Lord. That this, this world is not our home. That he is, he is gathering us up and he is purifying us. And he is placing his name upon us as his exiles to be brought into the eternal kingdom of God. Again, not on a, a small strip of land in the Middle East, but in the new heavens and the new earth. Where the things of this world that are antagonistic or against the Lord, our idolatrous, will be no more, will be destroyed. Those idols will be totally driven out of our hearts. But beyond stirring up of the Spirit, beyond merely reflecting on the Lord's promises, the people actually had to obey. They actually had to get up and go. And that's what verse 5 tells us. Then rose up the heads of the houses to lead their families back. They didn't merely sit there and think about it. They didn't merely sit there and contemplate the Lord's promises, which is necessary and important. They actually allowed that, wor- that, that, that word to seek into their, their hearts so much so that they did rise up and obey and make that trek back to the promised land of Israel. And for what purpose? Specifically, we see this in, in the last paragraph of our text this morning, God's anointed place. In fact, this has been woven out throughout the whole text, hasn't it? Cyrus told the people that he was stirring them up to go build the Lord a house, verse 2. Verse 3, to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Verse 4, to offer freewill offerings for the house of God. Even receiving the riches of those around them for this purpose. Uh, Verse 5, stirred up to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then we see in verse 6, a description of all the riches that were gathered for this important purpose. Uh, Verse 7 even reminds us that the original vessels that had been uh, plundered were being restored. Again, emphasizing the restorative work of the Lord in his place of worship. At verse 8, it tells us that Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, is in charge, leading his, his people, the prince of Judah, well in this purpose. And then verse 9 through 11, the text, you know, it slows down to, to count all these different vessels. You know, it's just, it's just glorying, it's luxuriating in, in all the gold and the precious metals, all these vessels for use in the rebuilt temple. We have all the ones that are named and others that are added up to a grand total of 5,400 vessels. Why? Why are all these listed? Why are all these uh, mentioned in such detail? It's to emphasize. It's to make clear the importance of the task for which all these things are gathered and counted and numbered and sent back to Jerusalem. Not just so that they can live there instead of here 
but to actually enjoy the worship of the Lord in his very presence in his temple. That is, the, that, is, that is the bottom of the funnel. That's where this entire chapter has been going. That's why the Lord is gathering his people. That's why the Lord is stirring up Cyrus. That's why the Lord is equipping them with all these vessels and restoring the original vessels stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. It's for his worship. It's for the glory of his name. It's for the lifting up of his magnificence among all the nations. That's why the word house appears so many times in this, in this text. Remind us that this is where the Lord has chosen to make his presence especially known here on this earth in the Old Testament. That's why it's gold. That's why it's silver, importing, uh, importance and value and highest worth to this one task, to worship the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I hope that the parallels are obvious to you. That is why the Lord is, is working anointed purposes in your life. That is why... That is why sometimes life is difficult because the Lord is sanctifying us, making us pure, making us more holy so that he will be more glorified. So that when we worship him in the new heavens and the earth, we will perfectly bear his image as his redeemed sons and daughters. This is, this is, even, this is even why Christ came. Yes, he came to die. Yes, he came to pay the price for our sins. Yes, he came to give us his righteousness. But why do we need our sins forgiven? Why do we need to have his righteousness? Why do we need to have him interceding for us on our behalf now before the throne of God? So that we may be brought into his presence to worship him. That we may be brought into his presence to glorify him. Uh, Now in our lives on earth, especially on the Lord's Day and, and throughout our daily lives, but especially for all eternity, that we may be holy, that we may be washed clean, that we may come boldly before the presence of God, bearing the the righteous robes of Christ's righteousness. We We love to dream about heaven. We love to think about what it would be like to no longer be sick, to no longer have arguments with our spouse, to no longer have to have thorns and thistles in our work. But let us not let us not focus on all those, you know, side benefits of the ultimate benefit. To be before the Lord in his temple. To worship him. Not in an edifice on a hill in Jerusalem. But the new Jerusalem. As the whole earth is filled with the presence of the Lord. Where we may worship him there. So take heart, dear saints. As the Lord works in your lives many times in ways that we would not prefer uh, many times uh, refining us with fire, usually literally, usually not literally, usually figuratively, sometimes literally, uh, whether it be pain, sickness, and heartache, and many good things too, but all coming down to this purpose, that he would have us to be his forever, and his presence, and his glorious, eternal, and four corners of the world temple that we may glorify and worship him there with great joy and with everlasting praise. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we we thank you that through your Son you have opened the way to you. As Hebrews tells us, Lord, that the temple and the tabernacle were just a a mirror, just a, a, a scale model of the eternal throne in which you sit. 
And Lord, we long for the day when faith will be made sight. When Christ will, will make us perfectly holy in, in reality, just as we are in status. That we will have your name engraven upon our foreheads and on our palms. That we will be yours. That we will fall down before you in praise and honor and in glory and in majesty of worship that your presence deserves and that your presence demands. Oh Lord, give us encouragement, give us peace, give us comfort in our daily lives as we are on the road to Jerusalem, as we are marching onward to Zion, as we are seeking your face now, knowing that we will one day do so fully. Through Christ your Son, we pray. Amen.